Good morning. Glad each and every one of you are here this morning. Um, It's great to be here with you to worship the Lord together. Uh, It's always a privilege to praise His name, you know, together on any on any day. Um, But just really want to just put our focus, our hearts, our minds um, on the Lord this morning. Know um, many of our our thoughts and our our hearts and our minds have been in other places um, a, a lot this week. Um, mine's been in a um, little NICU unit at St. Mary's Hospital, um, but so glad to have Joanna Grace home. Uh, and it's also been on our nation and the election and all things that, you know, going along with that. But I just, I, I hope that this morning we can take some time um, to really think about who Jesus is, who, who he is in, in our own hearts and our own minds and, and what that means for us and how we live you know, our lives every day, um, what our priorities are, what our focus is. And so we're going to continue this morning in the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 7. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 44 and we'll go through chapter 8, verse 4. Um, and so we're, we're talking about this great movement of God that we see in the book of Acts, the birth of the church and the growth of it, um, the expansion of it. And so uh, we're in the middle of that. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll hop right in to it. Heavenly Father, we just um, give you great praise today, God. Give you great praise because you are God. We thank you that ultimately there is only one king in this universe, and it is your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can rest And have peace in that understanding, regardless of our circumstances, on a day-by-day basis, Lord. We can rest in the reality that your Son, Jesus, is both Savior and King. And that one day, all wrongs will be set right. And so we take some comfort in that. We take our peace in that. Our hope is in that. And may that be evident to the rest of our world. In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen. So in Acts chapter 7, we have uh, Stephen, who's continuing his defense. Just a reminder of what happened to him. Um, He was one that was appointed um, to help serve in the church um, in Jerusalem. Um, What happened was, is that there was the majority of the believers were of of, Hebrew speaking, of Jewish descent, and there were others who were from all over the world, but there was, most of them were still Jewish. There were some who were Gentiles at this point, but most of them were Jewish, but they were Jewish from other places, and many of them didn't even know Hebrew anymore. Um, they knew Greek, and they named their children Greek names, and they you know, were fully participating um, in the, the larger you know, world um, in a cosmopolitan environment. Um, and so there became this dispute because those in the minority said, hey, our widows aren't being treated the same as the widows of the majority. And they're not receiving the same amount in the daily distributions of the food and the resources. And so they went to the apostles with that complaint. And so the apostles asked for the people, for all the people from both groups to appoint some men who would oversee this and, and administrate this. 
And it's really interesting because all the group, the whole group decided that they would appoint these seven men, and they were all from the minority group. They were all Greek speakers. And now they were in charge of the distribution for those widows who were in the majority and in the minority. And it was a creative solution that all the people agreed upon because they knew these men were of great character. And they knew these men weren't going to just then turn the tables and take advantage the other direction. But they knew the men had a heart for the God and, and would stand before God as justly and would seek to do justice in any situation. And so Stephen was one of these, one of these men. And what we find out, he, could also, he also had, God gave him some spiritual gifts where he was able to do some miracles. He was given a, a gift of, of um, preaching. Remember, he, he had grown up probably in this same um, synagogue, this place of learning uh, that um, he is now being accused by of speaking against Moses and speaking against the temple and you know, being called a heretic and a blasphemer and these things. Um, he had probably grown up there and, and learned all that he knew of the Old Testament in that environment in similar environments. And so uh, he was well-versed. He knew the Old Testament scriptures. He knew the Torah, the, the law of Moses, and the prophets, and the Psalms. You know, he knew them in his mind and in his heart. You know, I think he could probably quote large portions of it. And we see him refer to many different places, many different portions. He could probably quote large portions of it to you. And so when he came to follow Jesus... He was very equipped already in his understanding. It's like when he came to meet, when he met Jesus, everything in the Torah and the prophets and the Psalms clicked. And, he had, and, and you know, he came into such a greater understanding of who God really is. And so he used that. He wanted those who came from a similar background of himself to understand the same thing. And so he would go back to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called there, in Jerusalem, and he would preach. And he would preach to the people the truth about Jesus Christ, and they could not debate against him. And so they got some people to lie and to say things, you know, to, to exaggerate and to say things that he wasn't saying or to take a truth and to twist it. Because obviously Stephen is preaching that something has changed and something is, is different now. He's not, they're not mad at him because he's saying, let's just continue on with the same old, same old. They're, they're mad because he's, he's is preaching that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the promised one that they had been waiting for, that he truly is the Savior and the King. And so in verse 44, he says, Our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown to Moses. And years later, when Joshua led our ancestors into battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into their new territory and it stayed there until the time of King David. Uh, and I just want to make a quick note there because I, I know even that, just saying that will trigger things. Well, wait, why did God send out these other nations? And remember that God told the people, the Hebrews, people of Israel, it's not because of your righteousness that I'm driving them out before you, but it's because of their, their wickedness, because of the, of the awful things that they did including their practice of sacrificing their own children to false gods, of you know, burning their own children and, and, and all of that, that God said he would you know, give judgment to them for that and drive them out of that land um, and give it to the Hebrews. But it wasn't, as we will see clearly, it wasn't because of that they were so much, you know, so righteous. 
but it was in fact because of the other nations had just gone to such a, a point of wickedness um, in what they were doing. And so in any case, we move to verse 46. It says, David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. However, the Most High doesn't live in, the temp- in temples made by human hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asked the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? Now, what is Stephen trying to prove here? He's showing that the temple had become such a fixture in their religious thought that in some ways the temple had become more important than God himself. We know ultimately God gave them the temple for their benefit. God didn't need a house. God didn't need a human structure of you know, this man-made thing. He did it for, for their benefit so that they would have a place to go collectively and to assemble and to, to worship. That's why God gave it to them. It was you know, Many things God does, he does for, for humans, not for his, because he needs it. And so he, he did that for them. But even in the Old Testament scriptures, in, in the book of Isaiah, it is written here, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asked the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Did my hands make both heaven and earth? And so that's where we have to always go back and, and understand, you know, we worship God. You know, we worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but we, we worship God and, and he is, you know, omnipresent, all present. He is everywhere. And so wherever you go, you can worship God and, and God, you know, you can give praise to his name. You give praise to his name. But it, it's important that we don't allow anything to become more important in our pursuit of God than God himself. And so for these people, the temple had become more important than God himself. And that can happen today. You know, a particular do- denomination can be more important to people than God himself. A particular church could be more important to people than to God himself. The Bible could be more important to people than God himself. You know, and, and on that note, the Bible tells us how to worship God, and it, and it tells us who God is and all the things, but we don't worship, we don't bow down before a book, we bow down before God. We bow down, down before him. And so that's where our, our knowledge isn't king, but our application of knowledge is what's really important. It's not about what we know, but what we do with what we know that furthers our actual worship of God and our service to God and our service to our fellow human beings. Otherwise, we make the book more than it was intended to be. We do hold it dear and precious, don't get me wrong, but it's not God. So we have to remember what Stephen is saying here. God had not always dwelt in the temple. Prior to the temple, there was a tabernacle. Before that, there wasn't anything. And, but these things existed for the people, as we've already said, for their benefit. also existed as a picture of God's holiness. But what's really interesting here in that quotation that Stephen says is where Stephen stops his quotation. Sometimes it's not all that what is said, but sometimes what isn't said 
in a quotation is also very important. If you look at Isaiah 61, the very next line, and remember his audience, his audience would have known this scripture and would have known what the next line was. Okay, and the next line is, I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts who tremble at my word. That's the Lord speaking. The Lord speaking and saying, I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts who tremble at my word. But instead of continuing on and saying that, Stephen stops abruptly in his quotation and says, You stubborn people. You are uncircumcised at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. Now, that's a powerful, powerful shift. Think of that contrast that he gives where Isaiah you know, says that the Lord said, I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts, who tremble at his word. And that's the very next line in this quotation that Stephen's giving. And instead of using that, he says, you stubborn people who are uncircumcised at heart and deaf to the truth. I mean, you talk about a contrast. It doesn't get much bigger of a contrast. You know, you're expecting to hear one thing in a quotation. The person stops it and then tells you the complete opposite. That's going to grab your attention, and it grabbed their attention, certainly. Certainly did. But he tells them, you know, and this is the pinnacle of the message that Stephen gives, you know, because he's drawn a line through this whole message. He's drawn a line from... Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph to Moses to David to Solomon. You know, this line of faith and this line of of preparation, of understanding, you know, who the Messiah is. You know, from Solomon all to the prophets. And so he's drawn this, you know, this line. He's made made his, his argument. And now he affirms that the religious leaders were guilty of conspiring to crucify Jesus. They were guilty of breaking the sixth commandment, which is thou shalt not murder. They were guilty of breaking the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. And what we're going to see here is you kind of already know, most of you know the end of the story, that they're gonna, they've already broken the thou shalt not bear false witness again as they've gotten people to lie about what he's done and they're about to break the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. They're about to break that one again too. So verse 54 says the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation and they shook their fist at him in rage. Now what we see here, you know, we've, we've got a group of people and you go from having a group of people, an agitated group of people, and you're about to have a, a mob. And, and, you know, mobs are interesting phenomenons in, in, in societies, um, what mobs show, you know, we talk about synergy that the, you know, the, the sum can be greater than the individual, you know, parts. That we can work together and we can create more than we could on our own, right? Well, the inverse is also true. You know, a, a group of people can destroy more than the sum of their individual parts. You know, we get this mob mentality, 
And it kind of shows that the sum of a people can be much crazier than the craziness of its individual parts. I mean, and you can see this, you know, you can go to a, an SEC football game between bitter rivals, and you can see this. Now, in that game, you have it be a close game. And, you know, individually, you've got some people, you know, different scales of rationale, okay, but a lot of rational people, like just an individual, if they're sitting at a coffee shop or having dinner with their family or whatever. Now, they're at that football game, and it's at the end of the fourth quarter, and that game is tight. And the refs make a couple of really, really bad calls that favor the away team and give the away team the game. What do you have? You have thousands of people in unison cursing. I've seen it. I've seen it happen here at the University of Georgia. You know, you go to, and I think you can go to any of these big schools, and if you have that scenario... You will have them shaking their fist and cursing at those refs in unison, all saying the same profanities. What do we have in the works there? A mob. Because you take a lot of those people, and on their own, just sitting down, one-on-one, across from the referee, they're going to see a human being. They're going to have a rational conversation. Not all of them, don't get me wrong, not all of them, but a lot of them would sit there and have a rational conversation about what did you see and what did I see and where we disagree. But when it's a mob, you can, you can forget about all that. Because that mob mentality takes over. I hope as followers of Jesus, we don't get caught up in any of those sort of situations. As you maintain who you are, regardless of what the masses do, regardless of what the masses do. And I'm going to continue, I would continue with you this morning that social media can be a mob also. It can be a mob also. Yeah, you're not all together in the same place, but it can, you know, and it can have the same effect, have the same type of effect. And people will say things because they feel empowered by that group to say things that they wouldn't say on their own. They certainly wouldn't say just sitting across the table from someone else. Okay, so we have this mob that is shaking their fist. They're infuriated. They're shaking their fist in rage. They got to love this, verse 55, but Stephen, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus. He saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand, and he told them, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Now, what can we say here? Woo. Uh, I mean, I come back to this. I look at it and go, you know, God's all-knowing. And he knows exactly the intensity of the situation that Stephen's in. And God could have teleported him out of there, just removed him. And actually, in the next chapter, we're going to see God just take a person that's in one place and move him miles and miles away to another place. God could certainly do that. He, does, he did do it here in the next chapter. But he doesn't do that for Stephen. He doesn't do that for Stephen. But he shows him something. He makes the situation both better and worse at the same time. That's what God does here. God makes the situation better and worse. It's better for Stephen because few human beings 
ever get to see the glory of God on this earth revealed in such a way. So it's better for Stephen in that way. But then we have to ask, you know, couldn't God have done that with Stephen in private, like later on? But he doesn't. God shows him that right here in this moment. And it's, it's simultaneously an opportunity for the people, you know, the whole message and this ending is simultaneously an opportunity for the people to repent and to fall on their knees before God and to worship him too and see what Stephen sees. And it's also, a, at the same time, it's a death sentence for Stephen. It's a potential death sentence for Stephen, and God's fully aware of that. And he actually knows the outcome before it happens, and he still does it. And you have to understand that and come to reality with that. Because it kind of flies a face, in the face a little bit of every, you know, people who are preaching, you know, just believe in Jesus, and then your life gets easy. Well, I would contend with you that Stephen's life was easier before he met Jesus. He's living a normal life. And then when he meets Jesus, he has a lot more joy, but he also has a lot more responsibility. He has a lot more joy, but he has a lot more responsibility. And then ultimately, in his act of obedience, the outcome of it is what we're about to see here. Verse 57, then the mob put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul, and they stoned him. And Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Now we know as we read the Old Testament we see sometimes, we read the Old Testament, sometimes we see where, you know, a prophet of God or a person of God, you think about Esther, you know, that was, uh, Beth mentioned a couple weeks ago, and, you know, like being, or I think even last week, but being obedient um, before the king and, you know, God working that situation and sparing her and sparing all the people, and, you know, she was obedient. And many other people were in the Old Testament as well, and, you know, you think about Daniel, Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how they're spared from the wrath of people by God's mighty hand. And then we come to Stephen and we see him get stoned to death. We see him get killed. Murdered, really. Because there's a difference between those two things. But he gets murdered. Same God. Same, you know, his people being obedient sometimes... There's different results. There's different results. And it begs the question for us, are we okay with whatever the results are for us, or do we put these parameters on God that says, I'm willing to follow you and I'm willing to be obedient as long as my story ends in an Esther-type story or a Daniel-type story or a Shadmach, Meshach, Abednego-type story, but not a Stephen-type story. I'm not okay with that. And so a lot of times, if we're honest, we put these parameters on God that basically we say how much we're willing to pay. But we see these realities, the first one being that Stephen was obedient to God's will for his life. 
you see that's obvious even in what God revealed to him and allowed him to see at the end of his life. We see that Stephen was obedient. We see that it resulted in death. And we see that Stephen finished well. In fact, he finished just like Jesus. It's really, really interesting here. Because remember, Luke, um, the same author that wrote the Gospel of Luke, writes the book of Acts. And so, you know, you see these trends in the, you know, are these things that if you read the Gospel of Luke and then you see in the book of Acts, sometimes you see a shift in a thought or um, things progressing and and moving. Sometimes you see parallels. Uh, It's really great to go from Gospel of Luke to Acts as you're reading, studying. Um, These are a pair in a lot of ways. But in Luke 23, and, and what's really interesting, these two quotations that I'm about to give you that specifically Stephen says, Luke records those that Jesus said. The other gospel writers don't record those specific, the specific word. Um, so here in Luke 23, 32, it says, There were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and on the other on the left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And then down to verse 44. Now it was the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last And when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And so we have Stephen saying these same things. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, don't charge them with this sin. I think it's safe to say that if anyone has lived in life and in death like the Lord Jesus, it was Stephen. Because in his life, he lived a life in service to other people. And in his death, he died a true hero of the faith. He died, you know, trusting God. that he, you know, he knew that he was secure in the hands of Jesus. He knew that even while he was being stoned, he was, being, he was in a much better position than those that didn't know the Lord. He, he had compassion for those who oppressed him. He had compassion for those who throw threw those stones at him, and he asked God not to hold that to their account, just as Jesus did, that they were doing what they did in ignorance. He lived well. He didn't just die well. He lived well. And if you want to die well, you have to live well. If you want to die well, because we're all probably, you know, unless Jesus comes back first, we're all going to face that day where you breathe your last, And if you want to die well, you have to live well. Whether you die of natural causes or whether you die at the hands of people, whatever it is, if you want to die well, you have to live well. In terms of the time that Stephen actually followed Jesus, now he was a follower of God. He understood the scriptures. And when he's introduced to Jesus, he says, yes, this is the truth. But in terms of his walk with Jesus, it wasn't that many days It hasn't been that many days since Pentecost. But he walked well in those days. He walked well in those days. Followed Jesus with a passion for his king, and that passion for his king caused him to become like his king. 
And that's the ultimate goal. We'll talk about this a little bit more, but the one that they laid the gar their garments down, the mob, when they laid their garments at the feet of Saul, that's the one who ultimately we know as the Apostle Paul. And that should give us great hope that even those who in one moment may seem to hate Jesus, maybe not the next. Maybe God does a mighty work in their life. But the Apostle Paul wrote, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is the, truly the way to worship him. And don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Because when we're following Jesus... We don't see everything like the world does. Stephen didn't see everything like the world does, did. He didn't see everything like the mob did. Or just the bystanders, or whoever. He saw things in a, in a very different way, the great clarity. For, for the big picture of life and eternity. He saw with clarity, and he, and he saw in clarity because he saw his Savior. Not just in that moment that God gave him that special vision, but he saw his Savior day by day. And so because he saw his Savior day by day and walked with him, he could live in a way that didn't copy the customs and the behaviors of our world. He could live in a different way than that. Stephen had, had met the ultimate goal which is to become like Jesus. In Romans 8, 29, it says, for, he, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. See, God's plan for us, his desire for us, is not just to save us, but to make us like Jesus. That salvation is just the very beginning. But the goal is to make us more and more like Jesus in, in character, in thought, in action, in word. Make us more and more like Jesus is the goal. But far too often we're consumed by the details of life. We're consumed with what sort of job or career to pursue, of where we should live, of what TV show to binge next on Netflix, or even just what to have for dinner. And then something like this week happens, and you know we just kind of all react one way or another depending on kind of what you, your particular mob is, is doing at that time. My, my particular Facebook is kind of crazy because I have very, very, very conservative people on my Facebook and I have very, very, very liberal people on my Facebook and I have everybody in between and I have people who love Jesus and people who don't, who don't know him, don't care about him, nothing. I have people that are generally nice and I have people that are generally mean. I have all sorts. And, you know, I just watch a lot of people just following their mob. Whatever mob their mob did is what they did. How they responded. But God's agenda for us is that we're not conformed to this world, but instead we're conformed to his son, Jesus. So we come like him in our character. And yes, God does care about the details of all of that. 
Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We can have the confidence that God does have things for us to do for his honor and for his glory. But without the character of Jesus, we cannot accomplish the things that God has set out for us to do in a way that pleases him. And we can miss out on some great opportunities. The best way to live a life without regret is to live a life in surrender to King Jesus. You want a life without regret on your deathbed. If on your deathbed you don't want to be saying, shoulda, woulda, coulda. Surrender to Jesus day by day. Yes, Stephen's life was cut short, but I'd, he wasn't complaining. He wasn't complaining. Verse, chapter 8, verse 1, it says that Saul was one of the witnesses. He agreed completely with the killing of Stephen, and a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem And all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. And some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women and throwing them into prison. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. So again, our three quick points on that as we begin to wrap up. The first one is that Here's our first introduction to the man who becomes the Apostle Paul. And we see what he's doing. His goal in life is to destroy the church. He he views it as something that is contrary to the way of God. He's willing to throw men and women into prison. He's willing to see Stephen stoned to death, and he agrees with all of it. Again, that should give us great hope. For anyone at any time who seems to hate Jesus, we can think back to Saul. That's his Hebrew name. We better know him as by his Greek name, Paul. But we can think back to Paul and go, well, there was he. And now, you know, who's going to be the next one that God does a work like that in? So we can be people who have hope. The second thing is that the persecution, just like the death of Stephen, the murder of Stephen did not catch God by surprise. Neither did this persecution. If you remember back to chapter 4, verses 33 through 35, I'm going to read these. It says, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for they were all possessors, all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Now we see the grace of God here, because the grace of God is that the people sold their land and their houses at the direction of the Holy Spirit. That's really what it means as a grace, you know, great grace was upon them all. You know, they are, they are living and, and acting according to the, the way of the Holy Spirit. When they are moved... To, that those who owned houses and those who owned lands to sell them. 
Now, that doesn't sound like a, a wise plan for the future, even in terms of just helping the poor. If everybody in the, you know, in the church goes and, and gets rid of all their resources and then they have to pay more to rent than they were you know, to own and all of these sort of things, it doesn't seem like even great fiscal planning for the purpose of helping the most people over time. But God knew what was coming. God knew what was coming. He knew this persecution was coming. And so instead of them fleeing from the homes and lands that they owned and just having them taken over by someone else, they got to sell those things and turn it. They got to turn something temporary and physical into something eternal and spiritual. Because that got their houses and land got, got changed into things that, that helped people with their practical you know, daily needs, but it was done so in the name of Jesus. Done so in the name of God, and so it had a, it, you know, it's like they, they followed what Jesus said when Jesus said, you know, don't lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You know, that's obviously an extreme application of that, but it was an extreme application that was led and directed by the Holy Spirit, and it was for their good. Because now when they left Jerusalem, they didn't go with angst of everything they had left behind because guess what? They, they didn't leave very much behind. They didn't have much to leave behind. But I do believe that there is a principle there for us and something that we should take in mind. And I say this to most of us who are middle class or becoming middle class or whatever. The, it, it is a reality that the like, kind of like the more stuff we have, and, and the more, particularly the more we value our stuff, the harder it is to be concerned first and foremost about the things of God, about the things of God, and just on a very human element, you need to understand that even in, in we see this in our nation, in our nation. Uh, when it comes to immigration, if the economy is going gangbusters and we've got a lot of growth, you hardly hear anything about immigration. Nobody cares. But when things are bad, well, people got to blame somebody. People feel like they have to have blame somebody. And well, who is it the easiest to blame? Well, the ones who got here most recently. You know, and that's kind of how, you know, it's, it's been a pattern in our country, you know, whether the people were German or whether they were Irish or whether they were Scottish or whether whatever, the last ones to come, everybody else says, you're the problem. Well, a generation or two ago, your people were the, the problem, quote unquote. And that's just how it goes. But again, I hope that we're wiser than that. I hope, I hope we see with the eyes of Jesus, but I hope that we're also just a little bit more attuned, even intellectually, to understand What's going on? You know, there's a, there's a lot of history, but you can look at pretty much any nation when the economy is bad and you have different groups of people within that. The minority will be blamed for the woes of all. It's a univer- kind of like one of those universal truths. Okay, back to here in this... Again, what looked foolish was indeed providential. What looked foolish from the eyes of man was the wisdom of God in the situation. 
And I want us to see that the murder of Stephen and the persecution of the truth, the persecution of the church, I should say, um, with many people thrown in the prison, it did not stop the growth of the church. In fact, it had the opposite result. So the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. How awesome is that? They, you know, they had a boldness to them. They were willing to go to prison. But until they got put in prison, they, wherever they went, they wanted to share this good news about Jesus, that yes, Jesus is the, is the king, he is the savior. He did die on the cross for our sins. There is life and hope in his name because he is risen. He is risen indeed. And so they went. The question that I have for us is if, if we had true persecution, like a, a, a real persecution, not, not little persecutions or pseudo-persecutions. I mean, I, you know, I look back at my college days, and I honestly believe there were a couple classes where I got marked down on a couple of papers and some things because of what I stood for. Okay with that. That's not a major persecution. That's a micro, that's a little, that's a little persecution. That's not, I haven't been thrown in jail. I voluntarily have gone to jail to share this message, as others of you in here have also done. But I've not been thrown in jail for it. I've not been beaten for it. I haven't starved for it. But what would we do if that sort of thing actually happened to us? I'm afraid that the reaction of most would be, but what about my rights? Instead of counting it a privilege to suffer for the name of Jesus. You know, and, and again, we do at some point we see the Apostle Paul when he's beaten without trial and he's a Roman citizen and he uses that to his advantage and says, hey, you beat me without a trial, not allowed to do that. I'm not saying we should never appeal to, to whatever justice is available to us. I'm not saying that, but what I'm, but I'm talking about is our hearts. Because even in that, the heart of Paul isn't, you know, you did me wrong, you did me wrong. Ultimately, the heart of Paul is for everyone to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what sort, of pers- what sort of boldness would we have? What would we do if we had a real persecution? But, you know, for many followers of Jesus today, this is not... Like for us in this room, right, at this moment, it's a theoretical question. It might not be a theoretical question for all time in this nation, and it might not be for specific individuals who God calls to go to really difficult places. That might no longer be theoretical, it might be practical. And for many followers of Jesus around the world today, it is still a practical reality because they are in prison and because they have been beaten and have endured suffering for the name of Jesus. And that may seem crazy that that could happen in 2016, but it's, it's, it's not. Um, and again, I'm just going to make a couple remarks here that I think tie, tie in with this, because you know, we have talked a little bit about this week. I know it was a heavy week for many people in many different ways. Um, like I said, you know, having a baby in the NICU, I thought a lot about what was going on, but there wasn't like, hey, I'm going to give you my two cents on social media or whatever. 
Um, but what I have been watching, a lot of it did make me sad. I mean, there were parts of it that made me angry. But, you know, I, and, and I don't mean to any, any individual because I'm talking about themes. Okay, so understand when I say that. I'm not, I'm not thinking about any, of, any person's individual post or anything like that. I'm talking about themes. And some themes that I saw were believers consumed by worry. That was a theme that I saw. And we need just to be reminded, just a gentle reminder, that our hope is in the Lord and that Jesus is still king no matter, no matter what. No matter what. The second thing I saw is that racists have been emboldened in their racism. Racists have been emboldened in their racism. And that's a terrible thing. And I've seen that, you know, wicked people come from all sides and will seek to use violence as a means to solve their problems. See, all of that. But my hope and my prayer is that as followers of Jesus, we would stop worrying so much about the things we can't change and instead prayerfully focus on what we can change. My hope is that the true church of Jesus will step up in this moment and show everyone what we're really about. So how do we do that? You know, one answer is just incredibly simple. It's something we've been focused on a number of times already in our study of the book of Acts. And it's just simply be friendly and seek to make friends with anyone you can. Be friendly. Seek to make friends with anyone you can. I'll share a little story from this morning. I was talking to Micah about it. I was like, you know, who are your friends? And he named some of his friends. And I'm going to change the name. I'm going to change the name here. Because in his class, and this isn't the kid's name, He's like, he's named a couple kids in his class, and he says, but not Sam. And I go, I go, well, well, why not Sam? Why isn't Sam your friend? friend? He goes, well, he says dino trucks can't eat rocks. <laughs> and I was like, really? He's like, yeah, I don't like it when he says dino trucks can't eat rocks. And I go, okay, well, do you think you could be his friend even though you disagree about dino trucks and whether they can or can't eat rocks? And he goes... Yeah, I think I can do that. Now, I understand that some of our issues are much more complicated <laughs> than whether or not Dotto trucks can eat rocks. But, but, you could see, but you could see in the heart, I mean, he's, I mean you all know Micah generally. I mean, he's a three-year-old, but he's a, and he's a sweet three-year-old. But even a sweet three-year-old will say, well, if you don't like what I like, I don't like you. And unless that's checked, and checked often through life, then what people end up with is surrounded by people who only are, are basically homogenous. They see and are exactly the same. And they end up in their life with their friend set being exactly uh, mirror images of themselves. And we don't need that. And we don't need to be that. And so if we have been that, then we have to say, Lord, I'm sorry for that. We have to raise our children 
not to be that. And so when they're three years old and they say, I don't want to play with him because he says different things about dino trucks, then I say, we have to say, it's okay to disagree about that. That really is. You can still be his friend. And I hope that we take that to heart, that we can take that to heart and, and apply that. Because it's hard, it's hard to hate someone you know. And, and again, that's not, I'm, as, as an independent, I'm not talking to either side here. I'm talking to everybody on that. I'm talking to everybody on that. Because I see conservative people hate liberal people, and I see liberal people hate conservative people. But a lot of times I don't see them sitting down and having a conversation. And so we have an opportunity to set an example that we're willing to sit down with anybody and share the love of Jesus with them, the love of God. We're willing to buy anybody a cup of coffee and talk. I hope that we get that because you know that the early church had a choice to make when Stephen was murdered. They can say, well, we now hate all who think this way. We hate all who see things this way. And we will isolate ourselves and we will be our own group. And we won't welcome any of them in. They could have reacted that way. But instead, they continue to take the good news and many times in many places to the very people who are trying to have them killed. And so that's, again, an extreme example. We have far less of a situation. We have far less of a situation in our culture at this time. We still have a situation. We still have a situation to to deal with, and I hope that people will see us as loving people. The last thing I want to say with this is, ultimately, the answer... And becoming more like Jesus and loving God more and loving our neighbors more, it isn't to try harder. That's the last thing I want to say on it. The answer isn't to try harder. It's to surrender more. It's to surrender more. Because the reality is that every one of us we were born, we were born into a, a social context in our family, our home, you know, whatever that was, in the town that's rural, urban, whatever you grew up in, and the schools you went to, and all these things had have had influence and effect on both your mind and your heart. And as a follower of Jesus, the process then is what in my mind and heart? is along with Jesus, okay, that stays. What's not either has to get changed, you know, redirected to him, or it's got to go. Every thought, that's what we're talking about. We say, you know, take every thought captive under Christ. So that's how we see things as, you know, when we, because we're taught to see through all these labels and all these things. But Jesus wants to teach, you know, teaches us to see the human being and to see the heart and if you could just this week 
take one person who's different than you are and sit down and say, tell me your story. I encourage you to do it with a stranger, even this week. To find a stranger, you know, take somebody who in your mind, in your box, doesn't match you. Because you know how we make those instant judgment calls that are a lot of time wrong? You know, but anyway, you're going to do that anyway. So do that. And sit down with that person and say, my name is, what's your name? I would like to know your story. And then just see what happens. See what God does with that. That'd be a good step. Some of you do that stuff like that regularly. Some of you are, I mean, some of you, your, your friend group groups show that you do that. But we all have to make an effort. And we cannot, our world's not going to get it right, people. Our world's not going to get it right. But as people, but the world is counting on the people of Jesus Christ to get it right. I believe that. So can we be so consumed by Jesus that we'll say yes to him and the little things that he asks us this week and whenever he asks the big thing, we're ready. But you don't get ready to ask, to say yes to the big things unless we say yes to the little things. The little things day by day. So there's going to be some little opportunities this week. Say yes to Jesus. Let's say yes to him. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We just ask, Lord Jesus, that you would help us. That there would be peace in our nation, that there would be the word of God going forward. And it might sound odd to pray this, God, but if there's any persecution in this nation, let it be towards the church. And not towards others. Help us to be always loving and kind and considerate. Help us to be patient. Help us to listen. And when we speak, help us to speak with love and with truth. We point people to you. Help us, Lord Jesus, in all of that we pray. As we take the bread and the cup and we remember that you being our Savior and King did not come cheap. That you would be all to us, dear Jesus. In your precious name.